Welcome to the gloriously excellent, indisputably dominant environmental news hour called The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or your beautiful local community radio station, Harbinger Media Network. The Green Majority. It's called The Majority because it dominates through majority as the tyranny of the majority. It is the unspoken subconscious uh, monster within every human individual truly wanting to get back to that green, blue, brown globe of interconnectedness with the rhythms of nature. And if psychoanalytical processes, if uh, therapeutic processes are uh, complete and thorough, every sane individual will turn to a eco-essentialist mindset and become a back-to-the-lander. And every disgusting loss of modern privileges that entails. Um, no showers, no soaps, definitely no toothbrushes in our utopia. Yeah, I mean, I, I got to say, I'm a pretty big fan of toothbrushes. And you know what? I'll go a step further. I love some hydrogen peroxide on my teeth. You will need to pull that plastic petrochemical toothbrush out of its climate-destroying chemical bath every morning with a pair of chemical-resistant gloves. My toothbrush is made of wood. I have a wooden toothbrush. All right. What are the bristles made of, Stefan? Horsehair? But we are the green majority. That's true. That's Yeah, that's the name of the show. That's the name of the show. Um, I can't remember. Is it is the whole, like, tyranny of the majority... The, the original idea was that it was just that everyone's actually an environmentalist if you sort of get to the nuts and bolts of it because right. we want to live on a sustainable planet. What I think of it as more that there's more li- the living green matter of the earth the non-human weight of all that life is so large and and can't help but be green because it's not because they're just dumb non-self-conscious animals it's up for uh-huh. interpretation yay it's not some you know political power statement we're on we're just on team moss whichever mob is larger we're down for (laughs) (laughs) yeah whichever version of populism is 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 the one that doesn't encourage like i don't know mass murder Mm. okay so stefan is interviewing chloe c yes friend of the show banking for a better future she works with an organization that tries to pressure banks into into spending their money better i should make this correction because i made the exact same mistake last time um she's an organizer with banking on a better future how is it that you care so little about the guests that you have on, that you get their names wrong, their work wrong? Okay, deeply better guests. Um, yeah, so Banking on a Better Future uh, is a youth-led organization working to, to improve the banking industry or to have the banking industry improve themselves. Um, and the reason why we're talking specifically is that March is the biggest month. Uh, for banking activism in the year because all of the AGMs happen in March. What's an AGM? An annual general meeting. It's basically when the CEO has to go and talk to all the shareholders and convince them that they're doing a good job. And so if ever there's a time to sort of protest the banks, it's during this time because it's the time where you can actually get significant changes sort of passed and through. And, And one thing I will own up to right now, at the end of that interview, Chloe and I spent a bit of time trying to come up with a good Pitbull reference um, for reasons which will make sense when we, which we listen to that, when you listen to the interview. Rapper, not the dog. Rapper, not the dog. Thank you. Um, and in, in doing so, we blatantly, clearly do not know anything about Pitbull uh, because he actually released an entire album called Climate Change in 2017. Only up to that right now, but it is a great conversation. If you want to learn about all the amazing work that they're doing, taking on the banks, that's in the second half of this show. Pitbull is the Celine Dion of the rapping world. He just he's just around forever and he's never going away. And he just has inexplicably massive crowds of people in his palm of his hand. I'm sorry. We need to give Celine more credit than that. Inexplicable <laughs> masses, understandable <laughs> and justified masses. Right. Don't don't step to don't step to not just my gal, but like Hey. This nation's a fraudulent nation, but like if this nation did have an icon, it would be Celine. Don't pretend that <laughs> her you voice might. is incredible. The music is emotional and evocative. Okay, moving on. Ending this conversation mm. before I get upset with a capital <laughs> U. Pitbull could easily have just as emotionally evocative, transcendent performances, but none of us know because we don't 
know what his music sounds like. So, uh, although I will say that we have to now use uh, Celine for our music. Like one of the music yeah. breaks has to be a Celine song. Oh my god! Well, someone send me a download code because I'm not paying for that. Continuing with our discussion surrounding the end of this world, climate justice in so-called Canada, a sort of just transition discussion framework that was published by six Canadian authors at the very beginning of this year. And they were interviewed on the show, most of them were, about a month ago. And we are reading the book together now. We have just read the first, the, the second and the third chapters of this book. The second chapter is called Delay and Deny discussing the um, tactics of the fossil fuel industry and those connected to them in their interests of first denying the existence of climate change and then saying nice things to just delay action for as long as possible. And then they discuss a just fossil fuel phase-out, what that could look like in Canada, because we have so many competing interests and rights that intersect with fossil fuel development in Canada. Okay, so Stefan's first question. Stefan, would you like to pose it, perhaps not directly in the terms you've written it, because that is almost illegible. Wow, okay, sure, thanks. So as Dave noted, the second chapter sort of provides a history of the past you know, 60 years or so of our, colonial gov- of our colonial government's responses to indigenous rights and environmental protection. And it sort of details how we've moved from outright denial on climate change um, and what were very, very uh, well, genocidal actions, quite directly, uh, uh, with within terms of of how the Canadian state dealt with indigenous people, and, and, and shifting from those, or especially in the climate change space, shifting from that uh, to perhaps a more insidious form, which they term new denialism, and it basically takes the shape of acknowledging the problem exists. You've heard us talk about this show before. You know, Trudeau's out there saying, yes, climate change exists. Um, but then creating solutions or putting forward solutions that are too weak to actually get us there and therefore sort of end up simply further entrenching the systems uh, that we find ourselves in. And so starting with you, Lauren, how do you sort of see this form of denial by acceptance in, in your life such experience and how and, and maybe if you do, have you seen any effective counters to it? The effective counters thing is, is a hard is a hard sort of question, but I think, I think one of the main ways, and this is maybe just something I've been thinking about a lot recently. So my apologies to any of my friends who might be listening to this, who are like, Oh my God, Lauren, shut up. Um, but I think one of the things that I've sort of noted, or at least been able to crystallize in my own mind recently is that this sort of like denial by acceptance tack that the Trudeau liberals have taken since their election in 2015 or whatever is, um, like is actually like the effect it's had on the climate movement within so-called Canada and the ways in which it's 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 affected our approach because because previous to to the Trudeau libs obviously we had the Harper government which was incredibly hostile and sort of when you think about it from like a movement campaign development standpoint what you usually want to do is like demonize your opponent and 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 develop two very separate camps and very separate factions in order to be like you're with us or you're with them pick a side and it also and and sort of like what that allows space for is like a certain 
kind of escalatory tactic. So like, I don't know, during the Harper years or like, or when you think about like people um, taking like really sort of intense direct actions, doing a lot of like lockdowns in the tar sands and like really sort of big eye-catching things. And um, I don't know, yeah, direct action was 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 a tactic that was more heavily utilized and it was made more obvious that like the government is not with us when it comes to climate action. Don't believe them, don't trust them. The only way we're gonna get climate action is if we really, really push for it and really demand it um, in sort of an emphatic extreme way. And then when the Trudeau liberals come on and they use this sort of denial by acceptance way of thinking and way of communicating, one of the things that the book highlights is that like they came in and they say all these really great things and they have all these really great frameworks, but but ultimately what we're left with almost 10 years later is actually not that much tangible progress in terms of like a reduction in emissions and change in the way that we approach the oil and gas industry and society. We have a, we have, a, we have a ton of paper. We have so many agreements. We have so many commitments. We have so many plans, but we actually don't have much tangible movement if we're really looking at, at the difference in, in CO2 output and, and degrees and stuff like that. And I think one of the reasons that's happened is because the Trudeau liberals have done a really, really good job of turning to the movement and saying, look, we hear you. We're actually like really reasonable here. You don't need to push us. You don't need to resort to any sort of escalatory tactic here. We're on your side. Just ask us for what you want. Just come to us. We're reasonable. You're reasonable. Let's be pals. Let's figure this out. And as a result, that's largely what the movement has 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 done in recent years, with the exception of maybe like, I don't know, the youth climate strikes that were big a few years ago. And of course, ongoing um, deep pressure from uh, indigenous land defenders in, in very real and very um, sort of like in, in, in ways that that has brought violence to them and their community. So like in, in no way discounting that, but here sort of thinking about settler climate spaces, um, we, we have, I don't know, sort of moved to a pretty acquiescent um, sort of communication style with, with the federal government. It, because the denial by acceptance thing is kind of a gentle approach to, to climate change. As a result, we're sort of taking a pretty gentle approach to, to our actions and, and our campaigning as well. That's sort of, I don't know, that, that's, that's one way that I see it sort of pop up at least in oh, yeah, the environments sure. I occupy. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think that also in some ways, I think helps explain why you've seen such an explosion in banking work, partially because they are an easier sort of target to make clearly villainous, right? Like it's sort of hard, it is harder to simultaneously sort of cheer on some of the government's policies or like want a just transition act that does good while also holding their feet to the fire for the fact that it won't do enough. That is a, it's a much harder sort of space to organize around. And so I do think that's partially why you see some other things standing up. But uh, that question to you, Dave, uh, how have you seen this sort of form uh, and any effective counters? I ain't seen a dang thing, Stefan. I ain't seen a damn thing. I'll tell you what I did see. I did, I did read in this book. Okay, I read in this book right here. Mr. Pierre Elliott Trudeau, all right? 1969, all right? Pierre Trudeau, okay, father of Justin Trudeau. Okay, you follow me? He wanted to end, quote-unquote, Indian status. And so he, he was trying to do an, a full assimilation process of uh, indigenous nations, which I did not realize that he was trying to entirely eliminate the distinction um and and the delay by denial um sorry uh ex denial by acceptance we're in the process of doing that with our relations with indigenous nations right now i think um we've accepted we've performatively accepted um residential school revelations and now institutions are doing land acknowledgments all over the place and it's like we use these these uh, apparently or ostensibly caring gestures in order to actually not address what's going uh, the history and the and the present. And so the den the denial by acceptance sort of happens in multiple places, but it's poignant here because the relationships with First Nations and our habits of of resource and fossil fuel extraction are so an aspect of the same project which is the canadian project from the very beginning no yeah fair i mean i, I think that's 
like uh, it's interesting that our interview, you know, last year with, with Jordan Cooey, where we asked him, has UNDRIP uh, impacted your ability to find, to get more housing built on the reservation that he's working on? His answer was basically, it's caused more red tape, but I, but I haven't got any more support. Mm. And I think you're sort of seeing that in, in similar ways. I think that analogy is, is, is depressingly apt, really. In the same chapter, a couple of pages later, they discuss... Um, how so when a corporation is dealing with having to get its like indigenous approval, right? Um, if the First Nation is act, is not forthcoming and is and is actually resisting, what they do is, and we've we've talked about this before, but what's interesting is thinking about it as an actual strategy of falling back to the band council, of of ignoring the desires of the nation and falling into what's what's immediately recognizable as 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 fluently or flushly relating to the the Canadian state which is the which is the federally imposed ban council and thinking like the corporation will then get approval from the council which is pressured by uh capitalist imposed economic forces to do what they see as best to subvert uh traditional notions of like non-colonial governing structures in order in order to get in order to get apparent approval from the First Nation for a project. And so I think I think what's good about this kind of writing is that we can see these um, strategies or these relationships not as being coincidences and accidents of of uh, the process of like the messy process of like building like a modern economy or whatever. And actual strategies, specific strategies for subverting the will of of regular people by corporations and governments that are connected to them. Yeah, and I think that's where the history comes in, right? It's, you can sort of sort of like see how the whole Canadian project is kind of just one big Hudson's Bay company. Um, but, um, but move on to question two. This is the one that I think that really struck out to me in, this, uh, in these two chapters, and it's somewhat connected to the previous question, um, which is that I'm, I'm just consistently amazed at how stunted our imagination for what government can do and what government action has become in the last 40 years. And one example of this very quickly is like in the book, they talk about how in the 1970s, a whole bunch of government run oil companies came up. Like they started like five oil companies, um, you know, the, the, the Canada did, and then, then a couple different um, provinces started their own. And I just can't imagine the Trudeau government coming out right now and saying, we're going to start five, we're going to start a solar company. The Canadian government is going to own a solar company and we're just going to run with it because that's how you build an industry in this nation. And the way that the Canadian government has decided to, to try to start all these other industries that we desperately need, that they know we need, has had come nowhere close to that idea. And that was a sort of like thing they did in the 70s. And yet somehow in the 40 years, 50 years since, any sort of idea that the government could do stuff it has been has been lost and so i'm curious how you like and and also just lastly because i my entire life exists within that time period i have sort of no actual memory working memory of the government doing stuff and i think that inherently warps my own brain and my own ability to to conceptualize a different world um so to you, Lauren, first, how do you think we could begin to push back against this? Like, like we are so stuck in some ways. And how can we create space for sort of new visions of things that are possible? Yeah, um, I like this question. It's something I've been thinking about. Well, actually, no, what I've been thinking about recently isn't so much like specifically within the government context of what our governments can do for us, but just in general, just the lack of creativity and the lack of generative thought within within at least the spaces I occupy, but, but in general, um, and it's resulted in a, me going down a rabbit hole of like, why can't I focus? Why is my brain broken? That's like very much kind of off on the side, a totally different thing. But anyway, I was having this conversation with a colleague recently and, and they pointed out, they're like, yeah, that's why I think I would really like to start investing more time in researching and learning about and understanding, um, how these movements for like liberation for instance have have carried out in um in latin america because so many of these battles for like socialism um or against um authoritarian regime like have been carried out in 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 um 
Latin American and Central American countries over the course of like, I don't know, over over those 40, 50 years that we have been feeling so um, politically isn't the right word, but so I don't know, kind of culturally stagnant. Um, culturally but you know what I mean yeah as as we've been stuck in this deeply uncreative headspace that has been incredibly limited by um neoliberalist ideology um that hasn't we, we have seen a little more creativity and a little more ingenuity um and pushing for for a more radical vision from um folks folks in Latin American countries so I think I think that's one of my at least my first steps on this path is to understand and spend more time learning about um not only specifically like cultures of resistance within Latin America but also just like what the fruits of that labor has looked like and what and how and how that transformation has played out and what those successes have been and and also understanding that that to a degree a lot of those successes have been have been halted in their tracks because of intervention from the global north. But anyway, that's kind of like my first step is look to other places that have been able to carry out this work successfully and maybe haven't gotten mired down in the same um, headspaces that we have in the global north. I have a couple of thoughts on on other directions too, but first to you, Dave. Well, one of the things I think we've been taught and told uh, for a long, long time in our whole lives is that creativity itself doesn't exist in the public sphere. Creativity itself only exists in, so goes the narrative, only exists in uh, the private sector, right? Because that, that's where people are free and that's where people aren't bogged down by all this bureaucratic stuff, you know, so goes the propaganda, where they, where they can actually come up with, uh, you know, can hire interesting people and come up with creative new ideas, right? So it's as if, it's as if the public sphere itself is just a boring bureaucratic regulatory nightmare and then it's only outside of that that creativity itself the sphere for creativity itself actually exists um but that but that is something that becomes i think uh like the question of um the the, the vastness the vastness and in, in complexity and in, in disturbing enormity of the question comes apparent in the the chapters that we read because it's like yeah, these companies could be nationalized, right? But what that would require, or something, whatever, you know, is going to be the actual just transition, requires the government to be like, we're literally stripping all, we're taking, it requires them to take so much away from very powerful organizations, right? It, so the corporations themselves would appear to be more powerful than the governments. They appear to be more powerful than the governments. People are scared of the corporations. And so for this to occur, the government itself would have to take a lot of risk in being like, we're actually going to take so much away from these corporations and systematically dismantle them and bring them back in to, quote-unquote, the public fold. And there's so much distrust about what the government would do with that money, right? There's so much, like, people's party crap, people being like, you know, nobody trusting any governmental body to do anything with what they would then take from those com those those corporations so not only do the corporations have so much structural power and and uh, like uh, firepower literally with with uh, security forces and police and so forth but also uh power in the cultural imagination of being like the only people who can be trusted essentially uh with the money and with the power um and so it's just it's just it's just a very it's a very large and confusing question of like how could a government successfully take uh, take enough from these these private corporations in order to do what needs to be done without imploding under the weight of all of that power being brought to bear against uh, the government that would do that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's also that is truly one of the bigger fears. I think in terms of Lada's action is just how truly powerful the united sort of push from big business would be and has been as we've seen two people who have tried to well yeah, even here in, in i didn't realize taft the liberal guy in, in alberta there's this, there's a brief mention of this maybe we should read his book from 2017 i don't know but he was like let me just let me just get the page real quick so Kevin Taft, he was Alberta liberal leader. I guess he wasn't actually in power. Or was he? No. He was he was a leader of the provincial opposition, the liberals in Alberta. And he was going against the industry. He was trying to reform 
or dismantle perhaps do do something against the fossil fuel industry and literally or individ an individual from the industry told him that his political career would be over if he kept doing it and he did and then he never got elected again and so it's that kind of thing right it's that kind of disturbingly shadowy power that blocks people from getting well, and 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 that's on like and, and that's when that's on like th th that example is probably playing out all over the place with these sort of lesser powerful folks and then the idea that it, when someone does get into power that does actually challenge things you know then the, you see a sort of you see this other wave come at them that can then you know topple topple your government or and then and then it becomes this thing where it's interesting, right? It becomes this example of, oh, look, it doesn't work because these people tried versus rather than it's because there was a concerted effort from capital to make it fail, right? Like it becomes this narrative that attempting these reforms will fail, but they were failed because there's the the conservative effort of capital to to make them fail. And that's a really hard balanced act. It's like you not only have to get the policies right and in place, you then have to fight the battle against the capital that will then push back and try to undermine you in every turn. Yeah, and all and all the propaganda they're capable of of putting out there of like those people are evil, right? And can never be trusted, et cetera. Okay. So so finally, um question three. As we mentioned, chapter three is is called a, a just fossil fuel phase out, and we'll cover this more in a couple of different ways. We have our next week's interviews actually um, with with Hadrian. Um, I should say his full name correctly. Hadrian Mer Hadrian Merton's Kirk Kirkwood. Hadrian's Merton Kirkwood. Oh man, you just said it like wrong three times. In our it's Hadrian Merton's Kirkwood. That's what it is. <laughs> Um, he's a, he's a seed researcher for the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, talking about the Sustainable Jobs Act, um, and and so we'll get into a little bit more about what the Kirkham is actually doing about this topic. But what I love about this chapter is that it actually sort of begins to map out and does map out um, a a way forward, and it sort of and it just talks through it. And so, to you, Lauren, first, which of their suggestions sort of caught your attention the most? They have this really great section um, that if you're following along uh, is, yeah, in chapter three specifically digs into it, uh, starts on page 74, where it, it sort of is weighing um, the benefits um, of public ownership or regularization of the industry. And they spend a lot of time talking about regularization and steps that can be taken that are all really important and like key. But um, the section that kind of got me excited was the part on public ownership, which oftentimes is referred to as nationalization um, of the oil and gas industry. They make a distinction. Um, they opt not to call it nationalization, um, given sort of like the colonial nature of nationalization. Um, so, so they use terms like public ownership or socialization. Um, and just to quote, to, to make sure I'm not sort of like misrepresenting it here, the socialization option would involve bringing the fossil fuel industry in Canada under public ownership rapidly, but humanely shutting it down and developing alternatives. Bringing fossil fuel companies under public ownership would take away the profit motive and put them under the control of governments. And that's sort of the biggest, the biggest thing there is taking away the profit motive, because we know that all of this regularized, um, all of the regulation that they talk about in this chapter, they, they acknowledge is really hard to it's not impossible to implement and it should be implemented but it's hard because as long as these companies exist in their current form um the way any corporation exists their biggest priority is always going to be increasing that bottom line as much as possible and increasing short-term profits as much as possible so by nationalize or not nationalizing by socializing or um bringing these corporations into public ownership it takes away that incentive the same way that like i don't know if, if you look at like a uh, another crown corporation like Canada Post, for instance, or like the LCBO in, in Ontario's instance, it's like the number one priority isn't to increase profits at all costs. The number one priority is to provide a service to, 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 to the people of this so-called nation. Anyway, but what I really like about the way they dig into it further within this chapter is, is they focus on sort of shared jurisdiction um, between provinces and territories and the government and, and the federal government and, and dual governance, um, taking into account sort of the autonomy and the sovereignty of Indigenous peoples and communities and nations um, in a way that is oftentimes kind of over, not overlooked, but it's just sort of like, oh yeah, that'll be an issue, but we'll figure it out when we figure it out. And they actually have quite a thoughtful sort of analysis of what that could potentially 
look like um, were this process to to be to be taken on. Um, and again, quoting specifically from the book, just a sentence that I really like: a just version of a just version of socialization would require, at the least, shared control of the fossil fuel industry between indigenous peoples and settlers. So, not the way it currently stands, where um, the federal government or or the provincial government or whatever writes up a proposal, takes it to a band council usually, and gets it rubber stamped. It's like, no, this isn't this isn't even co-management as we as we typically understand it within the colonial context. This is truly dual shared governance between these nations of these public entities. Um, so that's that's the solution that kind of like got me stoked. It was like, oh, this is such a great comprehensive analysis of what of what public ownership could look like. Awesome. And Dave? Um, yeah, I guess what most stood out to me there was the uh, illustration that a fossil fuel community, right, a, a place that only exists because there's fossil fuel to be extracted from the area, uh, isn't just the workers. It's every all the other people who ha- work there to support the community, retail workers, service workers, and so forth. And so their inclusion, right, because if, if the fossil fuel if you stop taking away fossil fuels, they also lose their jobs, you know, like they're just paid less. So we care less about them. And so the, the inclusion of the inclusion of, of them as part of the quote unquote fossil fuel community that's being dismantled by a transition, uh, stuck out to me as, as an important way of thinking about how workers themselves as a class is, is, uh, more important than, than fossil fuel workers as a contingent of the class. Yeah, and even in that piece, I think they note how actually more at risk these folks might be in terms of disruption, and in in because of the fact that they don't have sort of the skill set that can so easily transfer over necessarily, and aren't given supports to move or do other stuff. Um, cool. All right. Well, uh, thank you both so much for your illuminating answers uh, to part two of our four part book club. But we will be back uh, with my interview uh, with Chloe C an organizer with banking on a better future. And if you know any good pitbull puns, send them to us because we need some good pitbull puns, people. Why do you need, why do you need pitbull puns exactly? It becomes clear in the interview. Does it have to be a pun or just a play on words in general? A play on words in general is totally fine. Okay, okay. More like pitfull. Huh? People be people be moshing at those those gigs. Not, not as much Celine gigs, though. People go harder at Celine gigs. Oh, yeah. People... people bruise eye orbital bones at at Celine Dion shows. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. And I'll take myself another opportunity and uh, remind everyone that we are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, including other great shows like Left Turn Canada, Big Shiny Takes, and North Untapped. Thank you so much for listening. I am joined by Chloe T, the Toronto organizer with Banking on a Better Future. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. So you've been on the show before and we've talked about this a bit, but for people who may not have heard you last time or may not really know as much about Banking on a Better Future, what are the main goals of Banking on a Better Future and how do you work to support grassroots campaigns? So Banking on a Better Future is part of this more global campaign that's targeting our financial institutions and their role in the climate crisis, really trying to like go all the way back upstream and see who are really the people driving the climate crisis. And we found that they are the banks. These banks are the ones who are funding so many fossil fuel projects. And without their funding, you know, we would actually be able to transition out of those fossil fuel projects and have a just transition to a world without all of these terrible climate catastrophes. 
So Banking on a Better Future specifically looks at the Canadian banks, the big five, that's CIBC, TD, BMO, Scotiabank, and worst of all, RBC. And we try to go after them with more of a youth and student angle. And that's because the banks really, really care about students as a demographic. There's a lot of research showing that once folks choose a bank to bank with, they don't tend to switch off of that bank. So the banks are trying to get us young and we're trying to tell the banks, no, you're not going to get us unless you stop funding these fossil fuel projects and these projects that are violating indigenous rights. So our main goal is to basically call out the banks, create this threat from youth and students by supporting student groups, grassroots voices on the ground who are doing the work to call out RBC and the other big banks. Amazing. And what does that support look like? So some of it is having a community of practice, having, you know, a space for folks to come and share what they're doing on their campuses or their schools, their neighborhoods. We also have a big network of groups on post-secondary campuses across Canada. So, you know, we'll all, uh, the Banking on a Better Future team will try to support those groups in any actions they do. And once in a while, we'll do big things of action. We just had one March 2nd, actually. So... Yeah. And then, you know, we're trying to ramp up and become more of a hub for these groups to go to so that folks know how they can go after the bank in their own way that works for their groups. I'd be curious just again to get a sort of sense of the of the type of work and the type of change that you're looking for. Are there any stories of success from the movement that might have occurred over the past six months, you know, since we last spoke that you might want to highlight? Oh my gosh, yes. I have a big one in my mind. So every year, RBC and like all the banks will come and do their big annual general meeting where they'll try to look good in front of all their shareholders, all of that stuff. Last year, we had disrupted RBC's AGM in Toronto. Well, we had like steered them enough that they had to move their AGM online last minute. And then we did this big action with land defenders coming in and speaking. It was really, really powerful. And I think that power really scared RBC because this year they moved their AGM to Saskatoon. Um, <laughs> and none of the other big banks have moved their AGMs. All the other big banks are doing it in Toronto. It's just RBC that has moved over to Saskatoon, which I mean, I'm characterizing that as, as a success because like, why else are they leaving? Like, it feels like they're running away from us. That's all I'm saying. Unfortunately for them, it's not going to work because they can run, but they can't hide. And I think they fail to realize that there's a lot of really cool people in Saskatoon too, who also don't want the climate crisis to keep raging on and there's still lots of solidarity all across the country and the world still so they can't run away though they may try and we're calling it a success that they've moved it to saskatoon i mean sure yeah i think when you told me about first i i thought a little bit about how the everyone sent pitbull to alaska once by uh, by voting that he should that he that the walmart there should be the one where he plays it feels like, and not that, of course, that, uh, that Saskatoon is not a lovely place. I don't want to insult any of our Saskatoon listeners, but it's certainly, I imagine, not a place that the banking executives are, are used to going to. But yeah, maybe I'm wrong, you know? I mean, very reminiscent of Pitbull being sent to Alaska. Sure. <laughs> maybe Pitbull will come to Saskatoon. Man, if Pitbull, if you listen to the show, join the protest of RBC in Saskatoon. And my life will be complete. I will just walk into Lake Ontario if Pitbull joins the Saskatoon protest of RBC. You've heard it here first. Yeah, <laughs> I will do it. There. I'll have a reason to go to Saskatoon. Exactly. Yeah, we'll all go to Saskatoon for the Pitbull concert, which will be used as the combo protest Pitbull concert. This is a great idea. Solidarity with RBC AGM effort. Hit us up. Yeah. But that does the movement of the AGM does imply or does help with a good transition to the next question, because part of the reason why we were so eager to have have you on the show is because we know that the month of March is. You can correct me if I'm wrong. I'm going to say the biggest month in banking organizing every year, and that is because they have these AGMs. And so can you tell us a little bit about that? What what are these annual general meetings the banks do? And, and why are they so important for your campaigns? For sure. So annual general meetings are these big meetings that each of the banks hold every year where they gather all of their shareholders together. Sex will be there. CEO will be there. 
And basically, the bank will just try to look as good as they can in front of all the people that are shareholders or investors in them. And then while they're there, they also will, the shareholders will have the opportunity to vote on resolutions. So these resolutions are basically proposals that any shareholder can put forward and a proposal of how RBC or whatever company or bank it is should change their policies going forward. So March is so important because all of these bank AGMs happen basically in the first week of April. March is a big like gearing up moment. Our goal around AGM season is really to just make these big bank execs cry on their big day, their big day where they want to celebrate themselves and where they're nervously trying to look as good as they can in front of investors. We want to stop that. And we want them to be so anxious and upset because they deserve it if they're going to be funding climate crisis. And then another thing that happens is oftentimes there will be resolutions put forward at these bank AGMs to try to get the bank to adopt policies that maybe don't invest in fossil fuels or redefine the criteria around sustainable investments, just things that can get us to our goal maybe from the inside more. So that usually happens in parallel as well. March is so busy i'm already my calendar's already so fully booked but in a good way because lots of momentum and action is happening and lots of people are ready to get outside and ruin rbc's day which is exciting yeah and one thing i like about this specifically is there has been some discussion and some conversation that i've been paying more and more attention to over the last couple years about the need to sort of break away from sort of the cycle of just sort of protests that happen at certain times in certain ways. And then to sort of like basically like go into the streets, asking for something to be different. It doesn't happen and you go home. And instead being more specific and intentional about your tactics and and finding the points when your your the people you're trying to influence are the most vulnerable. And I think quite clearly these AGMs are that. Like these AGMs are the moment when everyone suddenly has a say, you know, all 360 days a year, you know, the bank execs probably have 100% of the power that you're not going to get a hold of them, whatever. But there's one day, and I definitely, as a heads up, did get the number of days in a year wrong there. I no need to fact check me listeners, but, but there's one day a year where other people have a say. And it feels like the intention around this is to take that known reality and exploit it in some ways. Totally. It's way more strategically advantageous to go after them in this like AGM season when they specifically want to look their best. And also it's like, I mean, like I try to stay out of the business press or whatever, but for people who like that kind of stuff and who care about that stuff, like the big bank, it's a time when business press is also looking at the bank and trying to see what they're up to, what new resolutions are being passed, what type of response they're getting from the public. So it's also strategic in terms of media. It's just a really important time for people to get involved. Awesome. And so with this strategy, what do you actually want the banks to do? Like, what are your asks of these banks and the banking executives? So we would want them to adopt policies that actually transition us away from fossil fuels, for them to stop funding projects that you know, continue our reliance on fossil fuels. And specifically, we are trying to call out their funding of the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline, which is a pipeline project in so-called Northern BC going through Indigenous territory, the Wet'suwet'en Nation unceded territory. And the construction of it is all extremely, extremely controversial and illegal. It violates Wet'suwet'en law. It violates Canadian law. There is a lot of colonial violence happening out on the front line against Wet'suwet'en and indigenous people who are just trying to, you know, protect their land. So we would want the banks to, I should also say, the banks are funding this pipeline. And without their support, this pipeline and other pipelines like this would not be able to go through and be constructed. So, you know, we're fighting against all the fossil fuel projects that they're funding. We're also fighting against projects that are specifically being opposed by indigenous folks and causing a lot of colonial violence on the ground. So hopefully we can start making little chips at them, exposing what they're really doing with customers' money, with our money, and get them to change. Amazing. And so 
what should we expect? You know, and again, I, I understand that there's some limitations, I'm sure, of what you can say, what you can't say, given that we, despite our overt plan to get Pitbull to attend, the rest of it might be a little more hush-hush. But what can folks expect to occur, roughly speaking, from the organizers that are working on this? Yeah, I mean, if maybe if there's enough public pressure, we will see that Pitbull dream realize. But barring that, definitely expect to see actions happening in solidarity with the folks on the front line of the Wet'suwet'en all around the country. And that will, you know, vary depending on where you're located. But I can, I can like say pretty confidently that there will probably be some, there will probably be an action near you that targets RBC. We are going after RBC mainly this year because they are the industry leader. And if we can get them to flip, then hopefully others will follow suit. But yeah, and like, just, you know, keep your eyes and eyes open, ears peeled for news coming out of Saskatoon, which is not something that people say often. But this time, you know, just look for it. The RBC AGM will be April 5th. So just around that time, maybe check what's happening out in Saskatoon. Yeah, great. No better time for a road trip to Saskatoon than in early April. Let me tell you, folks, beautiful time in April in Saskatoon. I don't think there'll be bugs. I don't know for sure. There might be bugs. Maybe bugs, maybe pitbulls, maybe both. <laughs> maybe both, exactly. I think I think it's the only way. Although people, if you're listening, there definitely won't be bugs because I feel like that might dissuade Pitbull from coming. So there'll be no bugs, Pitbull. Come and help the protests. But looking at this at a little more of an expansive view, where do you sort of see the banking movement going over, say, the next next year or so? Like, what are you guys moving into? Yeah, I'm really excited for the next year. I'm seeing a lot more connections being made between RBC's funding of climate change and the coastal gas leak pipeline and also their funding of so many other terrible projects. So, I mean, I can't guarantee anything, but it feels like we're moving to a place where we're able to make more connections between our local communities in Toronto or in Canada and other movements and struggles happening elsewhere. So, for example, I was just reading up actually on an article on Breach Media that was talking about our, I believe it was BMO and Scotiabank's funding of Israeli border security. And then there's a lot of other things happening in terms of Canadian banks funding things that are anti-Palestinian liberation and, you know, really damaging to Palestine human rights. So a lot of connections there that I would like love to make. And either way, it's great to see more people calling out the bank and just so many other, you know, community connections that we can make. Because RBC is terrible for the coastal gas pipeline and on climate, but they're so terrible in so many other ways, too, that we can also call out. So expect that for the next year. Amazing. I also hear that there's a rise in interest from Pitbull, just as the, which I think will only continue from this year. All right, I'll stop making Pitbull jokes, although I am serious, Pitbull, do go. But if folks outside of pop stars from seven years ago are interested in getting involved in this work, how can they do it? And, and how can they get connected to all the stuff you're doing? Yeah, the main thing I would say is follow us on Instagram. It's where we're most active. We're just at Bank for Better Future on Instagram. That's at Bank, the number four better future so if you are someone who wants to show up to any actions we're doing any trainings that we're doing in solidarity with students or if you're a student yourself please feel free to do that if you're a high school student me and some of my other fellow organizers are actually going to be running a training in toronto specifically for like greater toronto area folks uh, and that's going to be during your march break so we have training happening there's like the online version which is Half of it's on March 13th and half of it's on March 14th. Or if you'd like to join us in person so you can see your lovely face, March 16th is the in-person date. So all that information should be up on our Instagram page or will be up soon. So just give us a follow there and stay tuned for that or look through our posts for that. And if you're a post-secondary student, we have just a huge network of campuses and folks working on campus to kick RBC off of their campuses. And that's all, again, should be linked in our bio. It's also on bankingonabetterfuture.org. And you can fill out your information and we'll connect you to the campus group that works for you. Amazing. And so it is our tradition, as I hope you know, to give you a last word of the show, which we'll do in a half second. But before I do, just want to say thank you so much, Chloe C., 
the Toronto organizer with Banking on a Better Future and resident Pitbull Whisperer. I mean, I w- honestly, I-, I wish I knew even one Pitbull song well enough to make a reference right now, and I don't even have it. But endless. Do you have any last thoughts for any of our listeners? Please take it away. Oh my gosh. I've also been searching my brain for Pitbull reference. I can't figure one out. Yeah. My last thought is, you know what? The only thing I've been thinking about throughout this whole interview is the last time I saw you, which was when we were posing in front of some dinosaur uh, in front of an RBC branch. Yes. Yeah. Can we just like have a chat about that? Like, Oh, we definitely can. Yeah. Do you want to describe the dinosaur stuff? I think I can, for sure. So for those of you who don't know, and almost I can't imagine how people do, we a couple weeks ago, I had we had a, a professor on the show, Dr. Laura Tozer. And in that conversation, I did note that I was born and raised in Scarborough. And so in Scarborough, there is a, a mall. And this mall seems to have decided the way to get people to go there is to invest in an enormous number of dinosaurs. And the dinosaurs are all over, but most specifically for some reason, and I'm going to say it's because the mall is conspiring with us. This is the only real explanation. They surround an RBC in in this building, both outside and inside. And it was a little too good to pass up. And so you and I took a little bit of a trip and took some photos asking them to stop burning the dinosaurs because the dinosaurs just want to make kids happy. You know, that's what the dinosaurs want to do. And yet RPCs out here digging them out of the ground, out of their graves and lighting them on fire, which honestly, very rude to do to the dinosaurs. So disrespectful and probably illegal. Yeah. So we made like a bunch of signs and we got the dinosaurs, quote unquote, to, you know, hang on to them. And I think the takeaway from this is, you know, there's beauty all around us. And keep your eyes peeled. <laughs> I don't know. I thought it was so beautiful. A big dinosaur set up in front of our RBC. That's the best thing I've ever seen. More pretty than any art I will ever, ever see in my life. Yeah. And if you want to see some photos, we'll post them along with this show or around the show, because how could we not? And also, just on the topic of, of Pitbull one last time, his... First, one of the first songs people heard him on was a song literally called Gasolina. So it's time to put the Gasolina in the 2010s Pitbull and come to the now protest RBC. Electric vehicle-lina. <laughs> that just rolls off the tongue. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much, folks. If you want to go check out this out, bankingonabetterfuture.org. Uh, or check out my Instagram. Thank you so much, Chloe, and have a wonderful week. Thank you so much, Seven. <laughs>